Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. This morning, we are fortunate to welcome Shundron Thomas. He is the president of Northern Trust Asset Management. Typically, we'd sit down with Shundron and talk about markets, where he thinks are opportunities. But some, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Recently, Shandron uh, composed a letter uh, addressed to corporate America in early September entitled, I Can't Feel My Pain, talking about uh, combating systemic racism. Shandron, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Give us a sense of what you were trying to accomplish with your letter entitled, again, I Can't Feel My Pain. Well, well first of all, Paul and Bonnie, thank you so much uh, for having me on this morning. Thank you. You know, I've been very engaged in uh, the dialogue uh, that's been taking place, uh, both not only within our company, but within the broader marketplace. And, you know, it was born out of both, you know, my own personal reflections and then the experiences of others that that often don't, uh, well, I would say go unstated uh, because they don't have the same kind of platform that I do. Uh, But as this had progressed, one of the things uh, that I reflected on was the challenge uh, as a black executive over the course of my career, uh, because when you're dealing with issues of race, that uh, proverbial, as I like to say, third rail topic, it's w- not one that you can honestly comfortably engage in uh, in, 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 the, in the workplace. And often it's just because of the nature of uh, the cultural dynamic in terms of dealing with that kind of issue. And so one of the challenges that you have, particularly uh, as a black professional, is uh, you have to, in some ways, sort of bottle uh, the natural emotions when you, say, for instance, in your community or external environment, uh, see things uh, like what happened with George Floyd, or you see instances of what occurred more recently uh, in uh, Wisconsin that's right next door to me. And so um, that was one of the things I was really seeking to, to, to give a voice to and really to share some, some honest and earnest perspective on. What's been the response so far, Shandron? Well, you know, it's it's been really incredible to me because for me, you know, over the course of this year, I've actually had a, a number of uh, open letters uh, that have offered on, on key issues, whether it's my thought around compassionate leadership uh, in the pandemic. Uh, but the response to this, you know, really has been overwhelming, I, I think, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one uh, is when, when people can really identify with someone in their business um, that's actually experiencing these kind of things. And, and I think the, 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 the axiom that I used, pain hurts because it should, um, has really been a powerful metaphor uh, because we realize in the same way uh, that our brains really tell us, you know, when something uh, in our environment is dangerous or, or prov- provides a threat to our physical or mental health, what I suggested in the letter is, you know, our hearts in an emotional and a spiritual sense do the same thing. And both for the individual, we need the capacity and the ability to be able to process and feel that pain. But importantly, in social relationships in an organization, we need to be able to understand, empathize, and feel one another's pain if we're going to work effectively together and to have a strong culture. Shantron, what role do you think corporate America should play in dealing with this uh, diversity issue or race issue and all these things, what role do you think corporate America should play? Well, first of all, from a very practical standpoint, corporate America has a principal role to play. 
So, so think about uh, many of our experiences. I spend the majority of my waking hours engaged in my work and with the professionals that I deal with in the workplace. And so anything that affects me, right, in this case, you know, the construct of race, which has been around for half a millennium, is, is one of the most pervasive and impactful social constructs uh, that we know, particularly in the Western world, certainly here in the U.S. And so it affects every aspect of life. And so it's not like we get to go to work and we have, say, a work life that is separate from our real life. We bring all of those things with us into the workplace. And so to the extent working as part of a cooperative means that we come together uh, as individuals for a common mission and a common purpose and a common vision with shared values, how can you not, in the context of the workplace, uh, then address something like systemic racism? Are mandates the answer? I mean, it feels like there shouldn't be a need for mandates, but it also feels like it's not getting done without them, Chandron. Well, it's interesting because um, there's some in some corners a, a reflexive uh, rejection to quote unquote say mandates or targets. But I find that ironic because if I think about my responsibilities, I have the privilege of, of leading a global business, and so anything of import that we are focused on, not only do we have uh, priorities around, we have targets and we have measurements against. And all of those are common in our business. In fact, not only are they common, they're expected. And to the extent in any of my areas of primary responsibility, I didn't have those, I would be viewed to be profligate in my responsibility. But when it comes to advancing something that we, in many aspects, say is very important to us, like diversity and inclusion, uh, then there is often a pushback on saying we should have a target or a specific expectation or clear and transparent measurements. But I think it should be just the same as everything of import we do in a business context. Chandron, is this time different? It feels, at least to certain observers, that the what's happened in the country over the last six months as it relates to police brutality against certain uh, members of uh, minority communities, that it is different this time. Do you think it might be different? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, so I, I have a, a mixed perspective on that. If you go over the last, um, call it six, seven decades, we've, we've seen multiple periods in our history uh, where we've had um, social unrest, uh, and it's usually been led um, by young, courageous people of diverse groups and backgrounds, and we're seeing that again today. So if you ask me when I look at history, that's something that, that in a sense rhymes. What I feel like uh, when people say it's different, and I would acknowledge this, if I think about you know, my 26 years working in financial services and the business that I've been in, and then doing that in a corporate context, the nature of the dialogue in recent decades has not been this transparent mm -hmm. um, and has not been as engaging. Uh, so I think our challenge at this point is to say what I call this moment that we have how do we translate it into a sustainable movement? Uh, because, again, this is not the first time in history that we've had meaningful um, discourse and even meaningful social movement on issues yes. as it pertains to race and racial equality. Chandron, thank you for bringing us this letter. It is a September letter. I can't feel my pain. But if you go to the Northern Trust website, you can see other writings from Chandron Thomas on the subject. And we appreciate him today, President at Northern Trust. 
Right, it is time to check in on Bloomberg Opinion now. Ellen Wald is president of Transversal Consulting and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Centre. For our purposes today, she's also Bloomberg Opinion columnist and has written a column on OPEC's power over the oil market as we celebrate, I suppose that's the right way to put it, the 60th anniversary of OPEC this week. Ellen, thanks for joining. Has OPEC been a force for good in the world well, I think that OPEC has certainly been a force in the world. Um, initially, really, when OPEC was founded in 1960, nobody really paid it much uh, notice at all, and it wasn't until 1973 that it actually became uh, a household name or a political talking point, because that was really the first time that OPEC was able to have any uh, real effect over the markets. And for consuming nations, this was a very big shock, because suddenly their energy prices basically quadrupled uh, almost overnight, and there were mass shortages. So OPEC was seen very negatively. But for the producing countries, for Venezuela, for Saudi Arabia, for Iraq, for Iran, these were countries that for many years had really uh, been producing oil at prices that were probably below what they should have been. And so for these countries, the rise in oil prices did provide them with cash that they used for development. So, so in that sense, uh, the rise in prices did help, uh, you know, assist in the development and economic development of some of these countries, which traditionally had been uh, somewhat poor. So, Ellen, I'm old enough to remember uh, 73 and uh, looking at your license plate. And if you had an odd number, uh, you would go on certain days. If you had an even number, you'd go on other days to the pumps. OPEC since then, how has it evolved? Is it essentially Saudi Arabia and Russia and maybe a couple other people that we have to worry about? How has it really evolved as a market setting mechanism? That's a really good question because uh, initially it seemed like OPEC was kind of this boogeyman or this enemy that existed to basically uh, uh, control uh, consumers and extract money out of them. And over the years, it's definitely changed. Uh, at first, there was this kind of heady enthusiasm for, oh, wow, we can basically charge whatever we want. And since then, OPEC has evolved to take a much more balanced view of the market. And I think Saudi Arabia really did lead the way in this because Saudi Arabia was always concerned that Saudi prices for oil too high would lead to uh, demand destruction. And so they were always very sensitive about really managing the market, taking a long-term view. And I think over time, OPEC evolved into a much more technocratic and professional organization. Today, in fact, they issue you know, demand forecasts. They do a lot of really great data uh, collection and analysis. Uh, that uh, analysts find very, very useful. Uh, now that they've expanded this group to include Russia, it really very much is a Saudi-Russian show because they're the biggest producers. They have the most spare capacity uh, to wield in this situation. And yet, at the same time, uh, players like Iraq and Nigeria are always a thorn in the side, and they can have an effect on the market simply by kind of defying uh, the group. So it's not just a Saudi-Russian uh, show. Yeah, it's really stunning. I was going to say a more inclusive OPEC, but that was a little tongue-in-cheek. I mean, the idea that Russia has huge sway now in this OPEC Plus group is pretty phenomenal. Is Russia a good actor in terms of its oil dealings with the world? Because certainly some countries don't believe that Russia is a good actor in other areas. Well, I think that one of the things that, that OPEC has to realize about Russia is that Russia is always going to put Russia first. 
uh, they're never going to put the group first. And that was actually one of the reasons why uh, Ali al-Naimi, the former Saudi oil minister, was very wary of getting into some kind of larger deal with Russia because he'd seen Russia basically make promises, make agreements, and then turn around and do exactly the opposite. And so he didn't trust them at all. I think that Russia has uh, definitely shifted in, in that respect somewhat, but it's still a constant challenge to make sure that there's enough incentive for Russia to stay as part of the group uh, and not, you know, go off and do its own thing. And still, uh, it's always been one of the big uh, laggards in terms of compliance with its promised quotas. Right now, it happens to, to be doing much better than, say, Iraq, but uh, it's, always, it's always a gamble uh, as to whether they can keep Russia in. In fact, the whole thing practically fell apart in March. So uh, it's very much kind of a, a thin line here. All right. So, Ellen, that's the supply side of the equation. I'm looking at WTI crude here at just under $38 a barrel. Had been in that $43 range for most of August. Is this really being – is this really – as I take a look at the global uh, crude market, a demand-driven market, and markets telling us we don't see much demand out there? Yeah, demand is – the big picture today. And that's really, I think, what uh, markets are coming to terms with today. Uh, Over the summer, I think there were absolutely a lot of signs that demand wasn't as strong as people thought it was. We were seeing good increases in demand all throughout the summer, but really I think those were hiding some of the, or kind of covering over some of the larger weaknesses. And now that the summer is basically over, people have stopped trying to go on whatever vacations they, they could have. We're now seeing these weaknesses uh, come to light in a much stronger way and realizing that uh, there's going to be serious weaknesses in demand for the rest of 2020, if not into 2021. And uh, the market is going to have to to take that into account. And so I think we're seeing a price correction uh, with this realization uh, in mind now. Is there a forecast for when the world is no longer dependent on hydrocarbons? Well, uh, if you ask uh, if you ask uh, BP, uh, they forecast that day to come much sooner than than other people. I think that uh, there's definitely a hope uh, that you know at some point between 2030 and 2045 that that might uh, that might be true. But I think that that's very much dependent on uh, technology and the pace of, of technological development. And I don't think that we uh, have really seen the kind of innovation that will lead to mass adoption of non-hydrocarbon sources uh, across the globe. And so those forecasts are very much much a hope rather than a realistic prediction. Ellen Wald, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Ellen Wald, she's president of Transversal Consulting. She is also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. You can read her work and all the work for the good folks of Bloomberg Opinion at bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal by uh, typing in O-P-I-N, go. And Vani, you know, as Dr. Wald was suggesting here, it seems to be a demand-driven market, and the market uh, participants seem to be saying, I just don't see a big pickup in demand. Well, airlines certainly don't need any products. Uh, yeah. vehicles on the road for sure, but probably not as much as before with people not just doing their daily commute. But it's pretty amazing that it's the 60th anniversary of OPEC, which is yeah. literally a global household name. I would... I would just imagine there isn't a single household that you could go into <laughs> in the world and not know that OPEC would be recognized there. Yeah, and I certainly remember back to those early 70s waiting in line at the gas station <laughs> for gas. 
Well, we have green on the screen yet again, and yet again, tech stocks are leading the way. Tech investors seemingly shrugging off that nearly 10% pullback we saw just last month. To get a sense of, is there still room to move with these tech stocks? Let's welcome David Kudla, founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. They've got $3 billion under management. David, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate your perspective here. So again, tech investors got a little bit of a you know a scare last month with that pullback uh, and nearly a 10% correction in tech stocks, yet seems to not have scared many people away. How are you viewing that sector of the market? It was uh, it was a scary three days. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, a sharp correction over those three days, uh, you know, and then the days that ensued and from peak to trough on the NASDAQ 100 intraday, uh, the low actually came last Friday. So uh, about a, a little over a week that uh, tech stocks were in trouble. Uh, but, you know, uh, if, if I said that valuations had become frothy, that was that's an understatement for sure. And they've been frothy for for months, you know, even before uh, we came into the bear market. But uh, so so certainly, you know, the the uh, that correction was needed. And I say that correction was needed because I think it was a correction uh, that we're now already coming out of. Uh, we've got two strong days for the Nasdaq and tech stocks yesterday and today. And, you know, it is our our favored sector uh, in our portfolios, we've talked about it on the show many times, not only in the past few months, but the past few years. And um, we we continue to like it we'll, and, and, and uh, continue to be overweight the sector, even though, you know, I, I think it's, it's prudent at these levels and coming into the election that investors uh, look hard at their portfolios for how much risk they do have. Uh, because we'll see more volatility like that, I think, in the, the, between now and the election. How much of the Nasdaq would you advise people to own? It sounds, Dave, like you think this, you know, move is not a pivot as such. It's just a little breather. I, I think it is a breather. I think that uh, we the Nasdaq will continue to be strong when we look across all the industry sectors. And we look at, you know, where are the stocks that continue to do well? Where are the stocks that did well during the lockdowns? Either because, you know, technology had continued to do well with their secular growth stories or technology that were enablers for retailers or e-commerce, uh, IT. Um, those, those are the companies that have the best balance sheets, have the best free cash flow, have tremendous growth rates. Uh, it just continues to be such a strong sector. And when we say technology, you know, that's very broad, uh, whether we're talking about hardware, uh, IT, uh, e-commerce, other Internet. It, it's it's a broad sector, but, uh, you know, technology is eating the world. And we've heard that phrase many times, but it's true. And when, you know, technology is disrupting when it comes into an industry, when you know, the worst thing can happen is to, you know, to find out in the morning that, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, who has leveraged technology to do what he's done with Amazon, is coming into your industry. Uh, like when he did, did that with, uh, uh, and uh, Kroger, uh, the CEO of Kroger woke up one morning to find out he was coming into the uh, grocery industry. But the the point being that, that, that technology is being leveraged in that way. Are there other places we can go? We want to hedge our portfolios with gold uh, because gold is more attractive to us now than bonds with rates so low. 
Uh, we think consumer discretionary looks attractive. You know, other sectors we want to diversify into, but technology is going to be overweight in our portfolios for some time. David, you mentioned uh, the election and some people starting to raise some concerns about uh, the potential for a contested election, an uncertain outcome, uh, you know, maybe a legal process and, and the uncertainty that may bring into the markets. How do you factor that into your thinking? Well, we think that this could be, it could be a real problem for the markets. You know, we could have this scenario that's shaping up where, you know, we don't, we we don't have election nights and we're not going to have an election night any longer. We're going to have an election month where, you know, we're seeing this scenario come about where we could have on election night, uh, potentially one candidate looks like the, the winner and maybe a clear winner. And as all the absentee ballots or the, uh, the mail-in ballots come in over the coming days, uh, that may look to change or potentially change. So that anxiety, that uncertainty, the markets hate uncertainty. So that uncertainty we have leading up to the election. And again, it's not as much about uh, which party wins or who wins the election as it is the uncertainty leading up to the election so the market can price it in, price in the certainty. Uh, we not only have that uncertainty leading up to the election, it may be very uncertain for days after, and it may be very uncertain how it gets resolved, and that could cause some incredible indigestion and volatility for the markets uh, that, that could potentially go on for not only days, but weeks. So, you know, we are concerned about that. David Kudla, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you for joining us today. David Kudla is CEO and Chief Investment Strategist of Mainstay Capital Management, about $3 billion in assets under management. Coming to us all the way from Michigan today, it's always interesting to speak to people around the country, but what he says, Paul, about uncertainty is is really interesting, and to some it's an obvious point, but it's going to only get more uh, vivid as we approach the election. Marco Kalanovic, for example, of JP Morgan, the famed quant, talks about this a lot and how we're really only part of the way there even though the election is what less than 50 days or 50 days or so away at this point we will talk about this throughout the afternoon marco kolonovic on btv at 1 p.m eastern as well may as well get that in there this is bloomberg Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble at Credit Suisse, it seems. In fact, Credit Suisse and UBS are even potentially investigating whether to come together. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot more about this. Alison Williams, a senior analyst for global investment banks and asset management at Bloomberg Intelligence. How realistic is it that Credit Suisse and UBS could merge, Alison? So I would call it unlikely, but not impossible. And, uh, you know, normally this is the type of story uh, that I would read and and think it was rather silly. But I think the fact that um, it does seem like the chairman has approached regulators um, and is looking to do do this, gives it some heft. Um, I think the key sticking point, you know, even if the uh, local regulators agree, um, could relate to antitrust issues in their home market. So these two banks have huge global businesses. Uh, investment banking and trading is, is one we talk about where they compete with the U.S. Wealth management is an area where um, UBS is a global leader. Uh, Credit Suisse is also strong. But I think uh, the sticking point could be their um, home market, at least according to our antitrust analysts, um, and, and simply just looking at how big they are. Um, in the Swiss uh, business. 
So, Allison, even the fact that these two uh, European giants are even talking to each other about this, does that suggest that the business, European global banking, but particularly in Europe where the rates are negative in many key markets and are so low around the world, it's just so, so tough for these companies to make any money on their own? So, Paul, I, I think that it really just comes down to, you know, if if, European, if the European competitors want to compete, I do think that um, there has to be something done to form a global competitor. I think if we look at what's happened in the landscape over the last, um, you know, let's call it a decade or so since the banks have emerged from the crisis, you know, the U.S. banks have benefited from this virtuous cycle of you know, uh, technology spending and scale. They got profitable sooner. They put their issues behind them sooner. They've had, they had a better economy to work with. Um, so they had more revenue to spend, to invest, to build the technology, and which has resulted in revenue share gains and, and thus the cycle where European competitors have been sort of this serial restructuring at all of the largest competitors sort of exiting businesses one by one because they just can't be profitable. And so um, the reason why scale really matters is, you know, it's not just this concept of, you know, offering all the products, which is is sort of a nice to have, but, you know, to the extent that you have the money to make these investments, and that's, you know, sort of where the, the war is really being waged. And so if you look at the technology budget, and you look at Credit Suisse and UBS, and you add those budgets together, you know, that would put them in the realm of the U.S. competitors. The one, you know, caution we would say is, you know, it's necessary but not sufficient and it's not going to be overnight. So, you know, in terms of at least the global investment banking business, you know, if you can figure out a way for some of these European banks to merge to create uh, someone that has the technology um, to invest, you know, it, it gives them a, a chance, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily a guarantee. Yeah, I want to ask you what they all do differently, or at least what these two do differently. Uh, but I do want to point out first that we had the hilarious report from IP, that uh, which is a, a, a German newspaper inside Paradeplatz, that UBS chairman Axel Weber had threatened to move the bank's headquarters to Frankfurt if, if officials were to forbid a merger with Credit Suisse. So he was deadly serious about it, it seems. What do UBS and Credit Suisse do that's different? So I would I would say that uh, their business mixes are very similar, um, but I would say that UBS is a bigger competitor. You know, so from a global banking perspective, UBS is a bigger competitor in the equities business globally. Uh, they're stronger um, in, in Europe and Asia, um, but you know Credit Suisse has some strength in those businesses. And, but then when you turn over to the fixed income side of things, you know, UBS, they're very different in terms of UBS uh, making an early move to shrink their business years ago, much more flow trading, uh, currencies and rates, those types of businesses. Credit Suisse is actually unique across all the global peers and having more of a, a credit focused business. Uh, Bank America also sort of sort of that way, but more U.S. Um, and so they really have sort of stuck to some leadership positions in securitization trading and the like. Both banks, you know, have a, a strategic focus on wealth. So that's a similarity that they that, that they both have, um, although UBS has uh, perhaps a, a longer standing and, right. and stronger um, presence um, focusing on Asia. But that's something that banks worldwide are doing. 
Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we always appreciate your perspective uh, and global view of the global banking business. Allison Williams, Senior Analyst, Global Investment Banks and Asset Management for Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is Bloomberg's investment management research uh, business, uh, investment research. Uh, and Allison's one of the founding members of Bloomberg Intelligence on the global investment banks. And boy, when you talk about UBS and Credit Suisse potentially getting together on paper, that suggests a very strong global competitor and one that can stick with some of these big uh, U.S. Uh, global banks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.